Paul, have you managed to get hold of a ravening beast to protect the back entrance to the Something Who bunker? Absolutely. I've got it all covered. I borrowed one from that other podcast I'm on. Oh, the uh, the missing episodes one. I hope they aren't expecting any free advertising in return. No, no, no. Actually, I'm just hoping they haven't noticed he's missing yet. First missing episodes, and now they're missing a creature. What have you got? Is it a rill from Galaxy 4? The rills, Richard, are intelligent creatures. You can't ask them to patrol the sewers. It's not a Varga from Mission to the Unknown, is it? Uh, Not quite as deadly as that. Or as big. The octopus from the Underwater Menace? Uh, You're both thinking too laterally. A Highlander? It's Stevie, the Daegu. A giant Daegu. Wow. No, just just a Daegu. Isn't he a bit small? I uh, certainly hope his bite is worse than his squeak. No, well, actually, he's a herbivore, so you know you probably won't get any worse than a nasty nip. Great. The bunker is wide open. Hmm. I've got an idea. Which is bigger, Richard or Stevie? Uh, Richard, obviously. But what if I put Stevie right, right here in front of your face? It's still Richard. Only now my nose is getting nibbled. But Richard looks smaller. Well, that's because I'm further away. Exactly. So, if you could keep him exactly that distance away, and also have him here, then Stevie would be bigger. That's silly. Not as silly as running off with Stevie. I'd better take him back, hadn't I, before he's missed. I'll see if I can get hold of the Ogrons. Hello and welcome to Something Who Podcast, episode 28. Just when you thought you were out, we've pulled you back in for another of our mainstream episodes <laughs> where we compare a story from the original series with one from the new. Today we're going to pretend that it's all about giant animals with the huge rat from the fourth <laughs> Doctor story, The Talons of Wen Chiang, followed by the massive wasp in Tenth Doctor tale, The Unicorn and the Wasp. When really, all we wanted to do was talk about Christopher Benjamin. Oh yes, well, you know, we're only human. (laughs) And here to discuss these two stories with their legendary lexical legerdemain are none other than Giles. Yeah, had to live up to that. Hello. Our our very own Doctor Science, of course. And and Big Finish's own Jago and Lightfoot author, Paul. Enchanted. So hello to you both. Quarks. (laughs) <laughs> so Talons of Weng Chiang it's the six part climax to season 14 it's the final act of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era written by the legendary script editor directed by David Maloney um, I don't know if this is a good way of getting into it but when did you first come across it? Do you remember it going out the first time originally? I do, yeah yeah, um, all my first memories are from season 14. Uh-huh. I, uh, I remember quite a few specific moments from that series, but I, I don't know if there's any specific things from Talon, just a general atmosphere. And if, I, if I'm being completely honest, I think the thing that frightened me as much as anything else was the, the title card that they would show when they were trailing it, which had a big close-up of Mr. Sin. It was, yeah. I mean, it was on all during the week, you see, so I couldn't get away from it while mm. uh, from his hideous face while Talon was airing. 
Yeah, I, th- I think I probably remember him as much as anything from the original showing. Giles? I can't say I have a strong memory of of the show of the series itself. I'm honestly wondering whether I did see this or not at the time. Hmm. I have kind of mashed up bits of Robots of Death and Face of Evil and mm-hmm. things like that. And then um, Horror of Fang Rock I remember quite strongly. But I do rather wonder with this one. But then on the other hand, it was kind of ubiquitous. Because what I do have quite strong memories of is the Doctor Who, was it Summer Special that TV Comic did? with oh, the yeah. With the sewers photo... With the photo of them down the sewers on the cover. Right, yes. Yeah, so it was always a feature, but I probably encountered it through the novelisation, really, yes. before I, but yeah, before I saw it on screen, I think, or at least, yeah, so far as my memory goes, which is odd because I, I just feel like it, it would have stuck in my mind if I'd seen it, because it's got enough, you know, big memorable visuals. Hmm. Is that a Terence Dix novel? I think it is, yes. Not one of his... Mm. He does it justice enough, but mm. I mean, I suppose, perhaps limited by the page length. Mm. I've, one of the few I've reread as a grown-up mm. uh, was partly as for research. I was trying to get a handle of his prose style specifically, mm. how he handled certain characters from within Towns of Wing Trying. It works well enough that the audio book is one of my favourites, which Mr Benjamin... Right. Ah, does he? Right. Nice, nice job, yeah. Hmm. Oh, might have to look that out. Hmm. Actually, famously, there is one... I mean, I'm getting ahead of no, go ahead. everything here, but famously, there's one change he makes. He doesn't normally make a lot of changes unless he thinks he can... There's a bit of plot that can be tightened up or, so, or something explained that was left vague. But um, Terence changes the ghoul, uh, the old lady, played by Patsy Smart. Hmm. He changes her to an old man. Oh, good Which, lord. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever asked him about, but I can only assume he had some peculiar squeamishness about the idea that an old woman could be that um, vulgar and unpleasant. <laughs> and he makes an old bloke instead. And I think possibly cuts out some of his best lines. So he clearly had a problem with that. Scene I was going to say, did, did the lines there. make it through? Hmm. Uh, She's about the only other woman in the piece as well. Isn't <laughs> well, she? maybe that's it. Maybe he just thought there were I too mean, many women. I mean, there's that, there's that and there's the sort of non speaking extras, I suppose. We have one speaking lady of the night, don't we? One speaking yes. lady of the night, and the off-screen mm. Mrs. Hudson and um, various cowering... Emma Buller. Yeah. Oh, Emma Buller doesn't, of course, speak in Talons of Wayne Chang, but famously she speaks in the prequel, Talons Ooh. of Greel from Big Finish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, it's not taken me very long, has get it? it? Get it in there early. <laughs> Richard, get this back on course before I take over. Well, I mean, I was just... I, I think the next thing, really, is, is, is just initial thoughts about... About Towns of Wang Chiang as a story, perhaps. I should let you two go first. I always find it's, yeah, I always find it good. It's just, it's one of those, I'm sure we'll get into some of the more problematical aspects, at least on some level later, but but yeah. it is just so damned good. To be honest, this time re watching it again, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to remember. Oh, yes, I need to take a few notes and be looking at this critically because it is, you know, so damn good that you just get swept up in enjoying it on top of that for me there's a little element of location spotting because they filmed quite a bit of it just down the road from me oh of course hmm. the mortuary and the house where the aforesaid aforesaid mentioned the lady of the night um, and the spot hmm. where spot where doctor and Lila go down the sewers and stuff like that was just filmed at whopping pierhead hmm. but yes it, it's marvelous on this occasion i ended up watching it um 
I watched most of it on the special edition DVD hmm. and then was reminded at quite a late stage, five episodes in, that we've got a that I had a spanking new Blu-ray sitting on the shelf. And uh, yes. someone someone mentioned which had escaped my notice that they've they've done something about the rat. Hmm. So Is I that actually a bat on it? So, <laughs> so I went back and I went back and rewatched it. It's funny, I was explaining to my missus who's you know, completely not we, not versed in it at all. You know, I was mm. saying, well, it's you know, it's about the best. But I was, I was explaining the whole concept of ignore the rat. The, <laughs> that every, you know, that even the greatest Doctor Who will have some moment that's a bit yeah. like that. And it's yeah. quite, it's quite nice what they've done. I feel, and you, know, you sometimes can't work out what's going on. But on the other hand, it's probably better than the, mm. yes, better, better than what we had originally. Yeah, it's funny you should mention it because. I was going to watch it on the Blu-ray, hmm. and then circumstances meant that I actually ended up watching it in bed on my phone via BritBox, and the combination of the contrast <laughs> of the screen and the size of the screen and everything else meant that when the rat made its very brief appearance hmm. on a couple of occasions, I could barely see it, hmm. and that actually worked really well. Yeah. Because it, I, I was left with the impression of a rat without mm. actually being able to make it out all that clearly. And I think, you know, that's really kind of what you want in that scenario. Mm. Well, we always have to remember that even now, you know, compared, if you go back to the 70s, you know, TV, TV screens were not, you know, and I, I remember, you know, like most of them were like 14 inches at the biggest. And compared to the things we're watching on these days, yeah, quite, a, quite apart from issues of picture quality and things like that. You could get away with stuff more. There, there is that, Giles, but it is mm. undeniable yes. that even in 1977, <laughs> it was not a great rat. I don't think. I think you'd have to be watching it on <laughs> television the size of Richard's phone. <laughs> even in the centres, people didn't have weren't mm. lobotomized before they were allowed to watch television in the centres. People, people had eyes. <laughs> now we might as well get the rat out of the way first. It um, when I was growing up in fandom in the 80s. It, one thing that you were encouraged to think was that there were no undis- were there any undisputed classics. People would argue. They would say, well, all of these are in the pool to be considered classics, but they've all got a problem with them. None of them were allowed to be perfect. Mm. It seemed to be accepted that we all had to accept as Doctor Who fans that there would be something wrong, some production mm. flaw <laughs> with everything. And I don't know, I remember people arguing that Talons and Caves of Androzani were the two best stories, and people would say... There's got to be talons. There's that stupid magma beast in Kevin <laughs> and the caves fans say, "Well, oh, what about that bloody rat in talons?" And <laughs> so the internecine fights would continue. Which is worse? So, yeah, There's only one way to find out. <laughs> I, mean, I mock, but of course we um, we all feel like that. I think occasionally, especially yeah. when we're showing it to not we. Mm. And it's nice that they, if they can fix some of these little things, mm. so mm. that we can relax, we don't have to be clenching our buttocks, what watching, mm. waiting for the rat to turn up for a few minutes <laughs> out, of, out of you know six mm. hours. Yeah. And the new one looks. Um, it's not going to win any awards for CGI. It's not. Mm. The pinnacle is is the new snake in Kinder for me, which right. looks a million dollars. But uh, this rat, I think, as you said, what they've successfully achieved is that it looks as murky and weird as it probably sh- always should have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- in particular, the first shot, I, I hadn't. I didn't go back and um, compare it to the original. But I was rather taken aback the first time it had appeared because mostly they've just superimposed over where it was originally. So mm. it's darker and messier and but the first shot where it's creeping round the side of a 
tunnel wall is rather freaked me out because I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at first. Mm. I think that is based on one of the few shots they used of a real rat in a miniature tunnel. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I can vaguely remember that the rat does sort mm. of crawl. Mm. Yes, it kind of climbs up over the se- little... semi-upright. And this yeah. and mm. it looks very freaky. Climbs up over the little grill. I'm not fussed about the, the rat in the miniature tunnel. I think that one looked all right, mm. actually. Uh, well, there the you go. Of, yeah. It was the one in the suit, really. But, I mean, I, I, I watched it um, in two goes, and it rattled along pretty well. And, yeah, I, I, mm. I, I, I think what I like about it is it's never the same thing for very long. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of the a lot of the things that you think about it being are are sort of relatively short lived. I mean, you know, the, the blessedly the rats barely in it. Um, you think of that it's set in the theatre, but although it is set in the theatre, the the actual theatre bit is a relatively small part in in episode four. Mm. Yeah, you know, it, it it keeps moving on. You keep getting new things. It's it's the one with Jago and Lightfoot, but again, you get Jago and you get Lightfoot, but you don't get Jago and Lightfoot for very long either. But mm. you know, it, 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 it's uh, it's good. I enjoyed it. Yes, obviously, it's the best Doctor Who story ever made. But so I'm interested mm-hmm. in, in getting to the bottom of why it is. Uh-huh. As you know, I only do research using the About Time series of books by Tatwood and <laughs> mm-hmm. Lars Miles, yeah. and they rather snippily say in their conclusion, um, considered by lazy fans to be the best Doctor Who story ever, but on this occasion they're right. Which seems to me to be trying to have their cake and eat it. But yes. This yeah. isn't a review of, of my good friends Tatwood and Lawrence Miles. This is a review of talents. Mm. But um, I'm trying to remember now whether it was universally considered one of the best stories before I came to that conclusion. Because I didn't see it until the video release in the late 80s. Mm. And I think I came to that conclusion myself. But, I mean, I'm very arrogant, so that's one reason I would have mm. believed that. But I don't remember... I think maybe it was in the air, but um, I certainly didn't watch it for the first time thinking, well, this is that one everyone goes on about, which I guess a lot of fans mm. in the last 30 years have had to do. No, I, yes, I, I don't think it was perhaps a, as beloved then as it is now, mm. uh, but I, I think it was thought of highly, but not, not maybe as quite as highly as now. I, I don't want to digress too much, but this is kind of relevant. And maybe in the, it was in the 80s and into the 90s that the Pertwee era and the Hinchcliffe era were jostling for position as fans' favourites. Yeah. I think there was a point at which Pertwee was in the ascendancy. Everyone loved yeah. Unit mm. and the Doctor's a man of action. And then everyone, everyone, you know, I'm, imagine listeners, I'm using inverted commas there, everyone decided Hinchcliffe, good gothic horror. Mm. <laughs> as mm-hmm. Jeremy Bentham told the world on, um, on a documentary, was, was the way it should be done. And mm. this is the pinnacle of the Hinchcliffe era. I mean, the p- people producing it, up to and including Mr. Hinchcliffe, thought this was the pinnacle era, but it's not yeah. entirely typical. It's got much more humour in it yeah. than mm. yes. most of their stories. Now, in, in a lot of Hinchcliffe, the humour is, is limited to the Doctor and maybe in the Doctor-Companion relationship. Often, uh-huh. a lot of the strongest stories, even some of those that were written or, co- or rewritten by Robert Holmes, aren't particularly light on their feet. Mm. A lot, mm. Some of the ones that were very big in fan imagination, like Planet of Evil, for example, I found rather dull. They yes, might be yeah. moody and scary and atmospheric and horrific, but they, when that's all you get, then that isn't, to me, using the potential of the mm. Doctor Who format to its fullest. And also there are you know, very, lots of very funny moments in that era, but I think it really is right at the very end that it all comes together. And... Um, 
it seems almost by accident because I was going to say was it because Robert Holmes was had nothing left to lose he was let you know off the leash and said Philip Hinchcliffe told him to go off they they had a script fall through hmm. Robert Holmes had to come up with a replacement very quickly and he was told just go off enjoy yourself um, hmm. don't worry about it just hmm. we trust you just uh, <laughs> tell us what sets there are going to be and what characters and we'll start casting it and building the sets and you can write the scripts at your leisure and I think some of that joy de vie and freedom comes through in the script hmm. obviously what also comes through is a lot of pastiching because he hasn't got time to come up with anything original mm, yeah I can hear detractors saying well did he ever but you know it's more <laughs> obvious here than but it's he's having a good time mashing things up hmm. most of these things are not um big collisions of, of ideas and worlds that are miles apart often at, at its best doctor who takes ideas two ideas that have no business being in the same program and mashes them together here we aren't really we're just taking all the standard victorian melodrama yeah mm. archetypes and putting them in a big mixing pot but into that world he brings jay on life there's no yeah. other way around it I, that was what always attracted me those two characters and i think that's the clue that he was in, enjoying himself and Although there are some plot points that don't quite tie up, if you look at it too closely, I think probably... Doctor Who plots aren't always the tightest, but I think some of the things that don't quite make sense here show that he was writing it as he went along. Mm. And But none of that really matters to me, because the richness of the script and the dialogue and the fun, scene by scene, you'll just carry through it, like you said. Mm. You, mm. You'd never hang around in one place too long. There's always something new around the corner. Everything is rich, from the Grand Guignol plotting mm. through the dialogue to the sets and costumes. And this is what people used to say about it, even back in the 80s, that it's one story where the production succeeded on just about every level. Mm. Everyone rose to the challenge, which is all true. Mm. And the direction is as good as it's ever been mm. in Doctor Who. There's some accidents of production that um, work particularly well. Even, you know, it's, it seems to have been remarkably fortunate in lots of little ways that um, stories often fall down. I mean, there's a lot of location filming, but they did some of it on OB video cameras, which means you don't quite get that jarring effect right. when you switch mm. from st the studio video to location film. You've got a, a middle ground mm. here where they did a lot of it, a lot of recording in a real theatre, but on yeah. videotape. So you're never quite sure where you are, whether you're in the television centre or yeah. mm. a real theatre. And then when you switch to actual film on an actual location and back and forth. I've run on a bit there because there's so many things I like about it and I wanted to say yeah. them all mm. in case I forgot but I've run out of steam thank goodness so somebody else Can I just pick up on a couple of those points? Yes Tackling them in order one thing with what you were saying about this kind of being the acme of the Hinchcliffe Holmes era and coming at the end I was just thinking it got me thinking about it and I was thinking well it's been building to this I bowed no one in my admiration and love for Liz Slayton but <laughs> it feels like this thing snaps into place I, th I think it's just because Sarah Jane is played in a certain way and then it's yeah. it's really the and I was thinking is it is it the Tom and Louise dynamic I mean we all know famously they didn't get on all that well behind the scenes but then you you just have this succession of stories because it really kind of starts off in Deadly Assassin yeah. where Tom is a bit off the leash and he's he's bouncing off Bouncing off old stage, just playing the Time Lords, you know George Prater and and the like, and that's just that just works really well from that point of view. 
you know, elevating the the humorousness of the whole thing, and then you get then you get two Boucher scripts in a row, which have got his his kind of angle on things. Thinking about the ones that feel humorless, they are within the Doctor and Sarah Jane era, where it's all played a bit more straight. Hmm. Whereas once you get to Face of Evil and and Robots of Death, you wouldn't say those were dry scripts. I don't think. So it feels hmm. like you know the fact Tom and you know Tom and Louisa. You know, perhaps it's just the setup that the leader character, you know, whatever Tom's own reservations at the time, it does work very well with the Doctor. Yeah, you couldn't have that the the the, the comedy with Sarah Jane, you know, because I, I mean, I guess the character of Leela fits fits very nicely into that mm. Eliza Doolittle sort of mould and and into the period. So that so that kind of works on that level, mm. but also. Yeah, the, the the character of Sarah would have been much more in peril and and much less able to to handle the mm. the violence or whatever. Whereas Leela has that going too, so she, she just kind of fits better into this situation. Mm. And she also would have, yeah, and Sarah, because it would have been her history, she would have known. You know, she yeah. she would have had the she would have had the grounding in the history. Whereas a lot of the stuff that works very well in this is. Is the fact that yes, for a change, this is a scenario with which every, everyone who's watching it is very familiar because we've all seen Sherlock Holmes and countless things set in this era, mm. and a lot of you know. But we get a lot of fun out of seeing the Doctor subverting it from one point of view and Leela coming to it as a, as a as an alien world, really. Yeah, it's it's a this is an extraordinarily good point, and it deserves. <laughs> the difference between Sarah Jane and Leela and what it meant for the program deserves a whole discussion in itself. But, but you're right. I mean, this in particular, Talons is is set in a fictional world. This is not really supposed to be the real London. It's like no. the, mm. it might as well be the land of fiction, yeah. um, mm. with a strange melange of a pastiche of other fictional depictions. Of the, and so you can't put a real person in there. And the th- <laughs> with that, we're not criticizing yeah. Sarah mm, Jane. Yeah, that's not funny. How... She can be very funny, and mm. she can be in funny stories. But she's real, mm. and she really would stand it like a sore thumb. She'd spoil it. You couldn't do it <laughs> with Sarah Jane. Sorry, Sarah Jane fans. Mm. But I mean, she—I'm sure people will be inundating us with examples of her <laughs> appearing in some very wacky situations and and fully embracing it. But I—I I know what Giles means. So it has been building to this, and there, mu- there must be a sense of freedom, as much as everybody enjoyed Liz Sladen and, and Sarah Jane Smith. And I think also with Leela, Robert Holmes spots the potential. She's a great character. They get Chris Boucher to write her twice just to make sure they've got a handle on who she is, even yeah. once, mm. you know, second time out of context, and, and then Robert Holmes runs with it. And mm. I think she's possibly never better than she is here, but, but then nobody is. Mm. Nobody's ever better than <laughs> her. <laughs> I want to live in the world of Times of Giants, and I don't because it sounds very dangerous. Mm. Yeah, and I was going to agree with you about the OB thing. So, as I understand it, they that was the deliberate thing that they they sacrificed mm. a filming uh, like a film unit block for for the for the opportunity of having an OB rig set up outside the theatre and. Actually, I think it might have been a studio session they sacrificed. Oh right, okay. Opinion, but um, right, I just watched a documentary yesterday. That's the only reason. Okay, right, you you can beat me to it, but um, <laughs> but it does it does give. There's a very nice dynamism to it that you know the camera moves and stuff like that in the theatre stuff. Yeah. Which I think, yeah, I wonder whether it would have worked. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point that you get the the film murk, 
you get it where you need it. And it's a great relief that you don't have it. Oh, goodness me, yeah. You know, in in, in the theatre stuff, because if we've been jumping back and forth, then I think you'd lose mm. you'd lose at both ends. It's uh, Yeah, I didn't quite get to the, yeah the, my conclusion on that point, but you're right. It, it requires them to use handheld cameras, which gives it a whole new look. Mm. So they take that you get actually get an artistic benefit from this production decision. The only way they mm. could afford to do it on on their budget. Mm. And it's, so it's not just all the big shots in the open auditorium of the theatre could have been shot on film. Uh, and, and equally, they could have done the backstage stuff, the corridors leading up and down to Jago's office, all that stuff could have been re- remounted in the studio. Hmm. For some reason, they chose to do them on location. And having the handheld camera following people up and down gives it a whole different feel, hmm. Hmm. which is one tiny little <laughs> unimportant but hmm. undeniable part of what makes this special. Hmm. It's lucky it, w- it works because OB cameras, I think, famously weren't really good enough for drama. Um, they didn't. Right. I, I don't. I think it's one of the things that spawns the Sontaran experiment. They, right. It's not. You know, it's not film, and it's not. I don't think the video cameras on OB were as quite as sharp in some way. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. But here, here they get away with it. Yeah. And we don't really see much more of that until the McCoy era, do we? But it's a good. No. Should have been done more often. Mm. So, so coming back to some of your earlier points. So I sort of grew up in this era. I, st- uh, I was seven in 1975 when yeah, we had season 12, and then I was nine at the point that this was, was shown. So I have quite strong memories of particularly this season, but I think all, th- all three of those seasons. And the funny thing is that at the time, my, my, my dad was a big Pertwee fan. I was kind of feeling oh, I've, I've kind of missed out on Doctor Who you know there's there's these fantastic Troutons that that I'm reading in the in the target books mm. that I haven't seen my dad's telling me that Pertwee was the greatest ever and and I've kind of I'm growing up with Tom Baker and <laughs> and yet in in this particular story I mean it, it feels like it's peak Tom Baker because he's it's an utterly commanding performance. I mean, he's he's absolutely at the top of his form, and it's sort of it's it's just before the point where it starts to become kind of boring for him, and he and, and he brings in silliness. Now, I mean, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not against the silliness. That there, there sometimes that's good, but but I, I just feel like the the nature of this performance, where he where he's absolutely in command, he goes into scenes and and, mm. and, and takes command of, of everything, and he he's absolutely the centre of attention on the screen, and there's there's no. There's no time for kind of silly business. Well, there's the odd thing where he pulls out his stuff out of his pockets, but it's it's very minimal. Yeah, I, I, I feel it, I feel it's it, it's it's you know perhaps his best performance. Hmm. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it almost feels like a companion piece to the Deadly Assassin. In that, although he's got a companion. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's a very clumsy use of language, sorry everyone. Although he's got a companion here. Yes. In some ways, he also feels like the solo. Doctor of Deadly yes. Assassin. You know what I mean? Even though he's not, I wish I could explain. Well, that they better. are. They're, they're, they're separated quite a lot, aren't they? You, you, you mm. end up you, at the, in the early part of the story. You've got Lightfoot and Leela, and you've got the Doctor and Jago, and they sort of, you know, they, they form two different outfits for you know maybe a couple of episodes just, and, and, you know, and that's 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 quite an interesting dynamic, mm. I think. Yes, he does get to. I mean, yeah, among those six episodes, he spends a significant amount of time. With on his own with Jago and on his own with Lightfoot, so mm. he does get to try out some different companions. If you look at it that mm. that way, so maybe that's what I'm thinking. Mm. It's the pinnacle of that strange transition period between Hinchcliffe and Williams, which 
Although I think a lot of people over the years have tended to see it as a massive overnight switch between the mm. two eras. Mm. I think the, le the leader era is a buffer between them, the yes. shared companion. Mm. The fact that Robert Holmes stays on into the early Williams era is yeah. another point. Mm. And really, I think you put the nail... We've got there between us. <laughs> the fact that those late post-Sarah Jane Hinchcliffe stories loosen up a bit means that you transition into the Williams era with only very small, gradual steps. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that they show the um, season 15 out of order, which I think we did... I made a very a great hash of discussing on the Invisible Enemy episode. <laughs> the fact that they, the order ends up being in it alternates between Hinchcliffe stories like yes. Horror Fang Rock and mm -hmm. Fendal and yeah. the big space operas that we were going to get more of also mm -hmm. helps transition it. Mm. So I'm glad we've I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. Mm. Sorry, everybody. That <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big believer in showing you're working out, mm. but possibly we should do it before we start recording. <laughs> We haven't really yet talked about the cast. I mean, we've talked a bit about uh, Lise Jameson and, and, and um, Tom Baker, but it is it, it is a, a very strong cast all round. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Where do you want to start? They are uniformly good. It's very hard to think of a... Um... Is it Michael Spice as Greel? Yes, yes. yes. I don't know anything about him, but um, so I'm going to start from the bottom up, with no offence to Michael Spice, but he's possibly the least well-developed character here, mm. and... Mm. But in the pantheon of ranting megalomaniac villains, I think he gives one of the better performances because he really does skirt that thin line between making just juicy enough and going completely over the top, mm. which I think is what you want. So very happy there. Yeah. I mean, take it away from cast and characters and back towards the story again. I do think it's as brilliant as it is, it slightly deteriorates for me towards the end for, for a yeah. number of reasons. But I think Chang... Is so much the focus mm. of yes. our interest. Yes. And he's a much more interesting, multi-developed, multi-layered, yes. developed character as a villain. That when he disappears and it, we've only got Greel left, it loses a bit of mm. depth. And there yeah. are other, other things in, this, in the last episode. That I mean, there's that huge info dump as well on a couple of occasions where we suddenly get Tom Baker ranting <laughs> about the, the 51st century mm. in a sort of semi-incoherent way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, in, in a sense, it doesn't really matter because it's just a whole, it's just a whole load of random <clears> stuff. <throat> you can just sort of ignore it if it, if it upsets you. Mm. It's the offhand world building that Robert Holmes and George Lucas are both very good at. Mm. I, and no. if you want to know more about the 51st century, there are other fictional explorations of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just feel it's a bit heavy-handed, and I, I, I think Holmes does better elsewhere. I, 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 mm. It does. It, it it feels to me less like world building than <laughs> a whole bunch of exposition to kind of explain who Greel is and and why he's ended up in this century. It doesn't mm. all tie up. Mm. Okay, to use another digression. Are we all familiar with the theory? It's been strongly posited quite recently by some clever people that this was originally written with the master in mind. In fact, I think we, that we know that for a fact that Holmes wanted yeah. to re bring back the master mm. yes. and Philip Hinchcliffe wouldn't let him. But if you imagine the master there, instead of Greel, yeah. he's lost his time machine, he's in a decaying body, having yeah. to mm. take other people's life essence to keep going. Yeah. He's on, he's, he fears that time agents are looking for him. Maybe some of that world building, whether you like it or not, was a desperate last-minute rewrite to change mm. it from the master to a, to a human character. For, yeah. But I don't know if anyone's got to the bottom of that. Mm. They, there's been a lot of script archaeology, but more recently it's been focused on 
the story that's replaced, The Foe from the Future. Mm. And that mm. also complicates things because he, Holmes did nick a few elements from that. Not enough mm. that he gets sued by Robert Banks. <laughs> just enough. And of course, the line, The Foe from the Future, even makes its way. Yes, it does. Whether yes. as a tribute or, um, or a sort of yeah. tip of the hat to... Well, Robert Banks and Stewart had well and truly left him in the lurch, hadn't they? <laughs> by, uh, by all accounts, from the, from what I was reading in the production notes, that the whole thing kicked off. Remind us then. I've forgotten how that, where it went wrong. I believe Bob Holmes went off on holiday, you know, having having commissioned Robert Banks Stewart to write a six-parter, or I think the first episode had been written, and maybe the maybe that rings a bell. Commissioned him to write the rest of it, and he came back from holiday to find a note, no scripts, and a note from Robert Banks Stewart saying, "I've just taken a job on." Whatever shoestring. It, I was, I'm just wondering what it was, but he'd, he'd just taken a new, taken right, a job. Yeah. I had a feeling it was something. the right era, isn't it? I had a feeling it was something for Thames or something like that. So right, okay, naughty, naughty. But anyway, so he, that's where he, yeah, suddenly found himself. Um, so. Do we know why they didn't just try and finish that storyline rather than coming up with something new? I, I don't know, and I guess perhaps it was too much. Because that's what they did every other time that Rob Bob Holmes yeah, that's true. had something unusable on his desk. But I guess he didn't have he just really didn't have anything probably past the first episode and and yeah. and some notes which probably wouldn't have been quite the quite the same. He perhaps just had more appetite for this story. Yeah, yeah. well, it's interesting that the other thing that I was going to mention it relates to the structure and to the characters and all sorts of things. One of the things we often think about this is it's another example of that four slash two split you know, yeah. approach to doing a six-parter. And in this case, it was apparently actually written that they went into production on the first four episodes and then Bob Holmes hadn't written the last two okay. when, they did, right. when they did it. And they, they, more or less, mm. they more or less wrapped production on the first four episodes and then picked up with the last two. So he, I think he wrote them over, over the Christmas break and they went back in to, to finish it. And he'd promised not to use any f- location filming for the last two. Uh, yes, it, yeah. used it all up, so... Yeah. So Again, the, that, mm. isn't, that's not really... It's just one of many tiny little reasons why the last two episodes feel slightly less. Mm. Well, there's the um, there's the, the location shot, the, the point of view shot out of the window, apparently. And that must have been one of the first things... Hang on, does, does Jacob ever appear on, on location? Well, on film. On film. Um, does, sure no, film okay, does Jago ever appear on film? Too. That's the question, yeah. Hmm. Were the film location scenes done significantly before the OB uh, locations? Well, uh, I had it in my head, because I know Christopher Benjamin himself has, has pointed out that he, his pl- portrayal of Jago changes as the story goes on. But I thought, I had it in my head that hmm. in his film scenes, he's even more different, very, and there are very few of them. Quite gruff. Uh, he, he he's quite hard nosed at first, which is nice. Yes, yeah. he is. In the documentary, he just says that his mm. Cockney accent disappears, and he puts it down to the fact that he's taken out of context and put up against Lightfoot. Mm. Jager would start behaving differently, which is true. He's, yeah. um, mm. I don't know if he's just thinking through: was it an acting choice, or did I just forget? Mm. Was I just evolving the way I was playing him? And I think it's a bit of each. But um, clearly, the character does evolve mm. and continues to in. Mm. In other media, mm. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting yeah. because the yeah. So the the punchline to that is that the the point of view shots from when Jago and Lightfoot are staking out Greel's lair in I think mm. it's episode five. Uh, that's not actually Christopher Benjamin in that because that's a film a high angle shot taken on film, and they they shot it with a stand in for Christopher Benjamin. Because they the way the way they phrase it on the production notes is he hadn't joined the cast, so I'm not sure. Whether, oh. I'm not sure whether that means he had 
he literally hadn't been cast or whether he just hadn't whether it was just stuff that they they didn't need him on set for that hmm. for that if they if they were filming that before before they filmed the theater stuff on OB yeah using the word filming for everything doesn't gets confusing in a situation like this <laughs> but my more general point is despite this 4-2 thing and the fact that you know we obviously have that thing of oh you know that certain plot strands get wrapped up by the episode, end of episode 4 but it's not actually as egregious as all that and i think no holmes actually you know had worked out because there's a lot more carry through than i anticipated and i i'd forgotten quite how early the seeds of Greel's discontent with Chang. Yeah. Because that develops quite ni- you know, quite nicely through episodes three and four of Chang having to pander to this, you know, ranting villain and Greel being more and more dissatisfied with Chang. And then obviously Chang also survives into survives into episode five. And it's it's nice yeah. this continuity that it mm. doesn't feel yeah, that like there's such a you know, such a jolt. Yeah, so you've got You've got the character, I think, of of Greel, you know, starts out very needy, I suppose, very unable to cope without Chang, and yet by the end of episode four, he seems to have enough strength, energy, mm. and conviction to be able to dismiss him. Uh, and and then you get, you know, for the for the end of it, you know, Greel is is the strong character. So it's so, so you know there is a progression there from from Chang, as as Paul was saying earlier, being the mm. you know, the main leader of the plot to to Greel at the end. I mean, Chen could have disappeared. We might, we we could not have seen mm. him in the last two episodes. He's brought yeah. back unexpectedly when we, we think he's dead, just like the Doctor and Leela do. And yes. this possibly the only point where I feel like it shows that he was making this up as he went along by this point, because mm. when they track him down to the opium den, yeah. and he gives them a clue, they <laughs> they want they want to know where Greel is, and he tries to give yes. them a clue, and he grabs the Doctor's boot, and mm. the Doctor's trying to work out what this clue is, and it doesn't go anywhere. Hmm. Not only does that specific clue not get answered, but also <laughs> the doctor doesn't track down hmm. Greel. No. Greel comes and gets him, kidnaps him. Yeah. So it's there's something has gone awry there. He was clear. I think his thoughts were going one direction and then changed yeah. back again. Hmm. And it can only be the fact that he didn't have time to rewrite that. Yeah, they were either in in Bootle or Shubury or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and then there's that's that other strange bit, you know, at the end of episode five, where they come up with the brilliant plan, despite the fact that on two previous occasions they've been at Lightfoot's house and got, you know, overpowered by Chang and his, and his assassins, that they decide to wait for Greel again, mm. and then exactly the same thing happens for a third time. You, you know, it, it, it feels like why would you allow yourself to get surrounded and overwhelmed when you could be on the attack yourself and go out there? It, it, uh, but you know, I mean, clearly it has a way of resolving the plot, but it it just doesn't seem to have very much you know consistency of logic about it. No, it it gets away with it because there's still mm. enough charm and enough going on. Yes. And in in terms of whether how much Bob Holmes is planning ahead, one thing he seems to, was he planning that Jago and Lightfoot would meet up and become a double act for the last two episodes, or did he just look at his cast of characters? He's been spinning his plates, moving things around, yeah. moving the Doctor between Leela and Jago and Lightfoot. Mm. And when the Doctor and Leela get back together again, yeah, he's not just going to drop them from the plot, because he's, A, that would be dramatically unsatisfying, and B, he's professional. He's told people, he's told what mm. people, what sets and actors they need to employ, and he's not going to yes. start mucking around. So does he, does he think, well, I've got these two left over, shall I put them together? 
is it seren pure serendipity that we get this double act, which is the highlight of the last two episodes. Mm. So good together. We're so enjoying their relationship that we don't care that they escape <laughs> in a dumb waiter and then get captured again immediately. In oh, yes. In yeah. A yes. Completely egregious bit of padding. <laughs> yes. If you want to see Jago and a dumb waiter again, listeners, there may your <laughs> dreams may well come true <laughs> later mm. this year. Yeah. Well, that is genuine padding, isn't it? Because they were yeah. um, episode six was under running, and so they moved. They moved the first few minutes of episode. Here comes Doctor Production notes to make it clear. Yeah, yeah. They moved a few <laughs> minutes from episodes five to six, I'm just and jealous. and so so they literally, you know, it's right. Um, right. It's another case of Doctor um, Doctor what's his name goes walkabout from the three doctors. Um, yes, Tyler. <laughs> Tyler, Doctor Tyler goes walk about yes. from the three daughters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but as you say, we're having fun while watching them do it. Mm. It's considerably more fun than 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 the three doctors version of it. Uh, which begs the question of where did episode five originally end? Because if it wasn't on either revealing Greel's face, then hmm. Well, we'll leave that as an exercise for the listener. Perhaps. Indeed, yeah, we've yes. We've got to leave them yeah. something. We can't do all of them. <laughs> <laughs> You've got that Leela and Lightfoot very nice relationship. I guess with with Jago, I mean, it's not it's not quite as extreme as that, but there is that element of Jago trying to do his social climbing, mm. and you know, Lightfoot is clearly his social superior, but 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 he's not so far out of his depth that he can't adapt. And it, yeah, there's, there's there's some nice aspects, and in the end. It feels like Lightfoot being a, a, a kindly character anyway. We've already seen that in the earlier episodes. He sort of allows him to come onto the same level and, and, and for them to, to develop a good rapport together. Mm. I don't know when the documentary, DVD documentary, was filmed. I didn't check. I'm assuming it was before Trevor and Chris had started recording, had reunited for Big Finish. Yeah, I think so. But Trevor says some interesting things about Lightfoot's character. He really thought it through which are quite prescient in regard to where it goes after this story ends. He talks about how life was, must be rather lonely, a rather self-contained mm. man, mm. and that meeting Jago and getting involved in these adventures you know, opens up his world again for him. Mm. And it certainly explains from Lightfoot's point of view why they, the two might stick, stick together mm. after this. Always wonder what was in it for Jago. I'm still wrestling with that. I, I think it's the it, it's the ability to you know to hobnob with the upper classes a bit maybe, but I don't think it's with in any cynical social climbing sense. I don't think he's out for anything. He, no, I don't think it's he's very think happy it, with his hmm. job as the impresario. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's that it's social climbing as such, but I think it's I think it's it does his his own self image yeah. good. Uh, good. I think, I think right, the, the fact he he prides himself on when he thinks the doctor, you know, there's, you know, Scotland Yard. Hmm. He prides himself on the fact that he's helping the the detective branch do their do their job. I think he yeah, it gives him an ego boost, but I don't think it's yeah, I don't think it's social climbing in that sense of neediness. How original is he as a character? Because Lightfoot, although very nicely drawn, very three dimensional, hmm. is his roots as a sort of Doctor Watsony figure. Mm. Seem much more apparent. Yes, Jago has all the patter of of the Leonard Sachs, yes, mm. yeah, character from the good old days. Yes, but that's I mean we only really see him do that for a minute or two. The rest of the time, 
he's thought through what that that, cat, that person would be like off stage. Yes. And is it mm. come entirely from Bob Holmes's imagination? Because he loves mm. these Carney characters. The roots in Doctor Who times yeah. are back with mm. Vorg from Carney. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It, and we don't even get to see see Jago doing his Leonard Sachs thing until episode mm. four. Funny <laughs> enough. Yeah. And yet the the story is steeped in it, and we have the recognition of what the what the milieu is before. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean, that was what surprised me. That, as you say, you, you you get it. You get very early on in the story. You get him welcoming Chang as he goes off the stage, but you don't see him, as you say, in in, in his in his role as actually um, introducing the guests and uh, mm. uh, introducing the acts on the stage until part four. I mean, I don't even know if Leonard Sachs was a particularly accurate depiction of what a Victorian musical player would have been. It obviously it was his, his interpretation, but it does feel like like Jago sort of taking off. Leonard Sachs as much as an actual Victorian music hall impresario. The good old days had apparently been going since 1959, so... Yeah. What sort of record would there be of what the impresario patter was like? I mean, we've got records of musical songs and comedy routines. Those things mm. would have survived yes. over the ages. But would it have just been, you know, the, the linking stuff? I mean, um, Casey tells Jake, he doesn't... You don't do anything, sir, he says, in his stage Irish accent. Yes. And what he does do is a lot of alliteration, yeah, mm. whipping the crowd up into a frenzy of orchestrated mm. oohs and ahs. It's so hard to tell. I mean, I've been to, I've got Wilson's Music Hall around the corner from me, and I've been to a few things that are recreations. But the problem is, it's so filtered now, yeah, through many years. But I don't suppose the the swell, the the characters, you know, the, yeah. But again, that is the that's the turns as such that. But I guess you, I guess you imagine that the the master of ceremonies would have had to have had to have projected a large character in order to compete with, you know, what was going on around him. We'll probably come back to Christopher Benjamin again, won't we? I was, going, yeah. I, was mm. I was thinking of other things we could say, but we're probably going to come back to him. Yeah, we haven't said much about Chang yet. Can I go back to him? I okay. I yes. suggested that he's actually rather more three dimensional than your typical villain or mm. villain's henchman. Yes, yes. Okay, so 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 I, I'm I'm going to be daring here, um, having failed egregiously last time I tried to discuss this particular issue, but it seems to me, as you say, that that Chang is one of the of the most interesting characters in this. So the so there's a big question: Is Talon's Wang Chiang racist? Mm. Right. There so, it is. So it's, it, 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 so it you're you're like... going to put it to bed, are you? Oh, no, 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 make no, no, a drum roll. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to come up with an idea and you okay. can tell me whether I'm okay. bollocks, right? So <laughs> I have an idea too. Yeah. So, so it seems like a person can dress up as an alien. That's okay. Uh, a man can dress up as a woman or a woman can dress up as a man and that's kind of okay. It, see, it feels like the one thing that nobody can do in our situation at the moment is dress up as if you were in a race that you, that you don't originally belong to, and that that I guess is you know is the one thing that we get in this in this case with with Chang. It's mm. it's a case of a of a white man or possibly a, a whitish man dressing up as a as a Chinese man. But I guess the problem with that scenario is generally where you then caricature the race that you that, that you're representing. I mean, I mm. think the thing. You know, the, the issue we've got with blackface, the issue we've got with, you know, with a lot of these things with cowboys and Indians, is is that the is the white actor acting a caricature 
of the of the race and and being offensive in that way whereas in this case we've got chang is is a very interesting uh, uh, multi-layered part and the mm. only time that we actually see john bennett re- resorting to the chinese stereotype is is the stage act where he's mm. deliberately resorting to the stereotype because that's what chang is doing you know he's playing a character mm. everywhere else he's being a much more uh, nuanced and, me- and, and and meaningful part i think mm. i'll shut up now and let you have a, have a go who's gonna bite um <laughs> i'll yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that I, I was kind of thinking about this and I was thinking, well, looking at the, the story as a whole, I think you can't deny that if you, for a, you know, it is, yes, it's it's racist for a given value of racism by today's standards. I think I'm willing to give John Bennett a pass as and, and Chang a pass for, I don't want to make the excuse of how, how they did things in, in those days. But I think it is a very nuanced performance and it is a nuanced character. And I think if you look and sometimes the direction doesn't quite hit every point where Bob Holmes is undercutting the imperial stereotypes of the Chinese and so on. And a couple of things that I noticed also, I hate to say from the production notes, but apparently there was a there was there's a line cut from episode two after um, Jago and Chang have had some dialogue and Jago goes off and apparently there was a cut line that Chang called Jago an Occidental pig right? under his breath, which again is just like that's very... A bit on the nose. Yes, mm. but very much in terms of that it is, it's equally, it's counteracting the the yeah. kind of Orientalism. It's a, it's a, yes. a counterbalance to that. It's saying, well, you know... Yeah. The Chinese are as entitled to they're going to have their stereotypes or their <laughs> their bad views of the of the other race just as you know just as easily. Sure. And also that the the stuff about like the death of the th- death of a thousand cuts in episode four and the, yeah. and the stage stuff, and that the, the pictograms are made up on the cabinets and the death of a thousand cuts is a is an Arabic you know whether it whether it ever happened or not but it's a it's an Arabic right. thing not an Oriental not a Chinese thing so I think that's all interesting and you know and and you know obvious lines like the one of us is yellow yeah. and stuff like that it's all it's all signs that Bob Holmes is trying to undercut you know is is having fun at the expense and and given the time I think he wouldn't have compared to now where you'd, you'd need to have a soapbox speech saying racism is bad, okay? I think given, given the time, I think it's, you know, the the undercutting is there, but he wouldn't have necessarily felt like he needed to have the doctor stand up in a soapbox. I know no people have a problem with the doctor's thing about the, um. I think when they get attacked, after they've been attacked, I, I think it doesn't even refer to one of the tongs as, as little men, and we were attacked by this little man and, and all these other little men. Hmm. And I think that's a bit icky, but I guess you can also... I think it's just the Doctor being the Doctor, or Tom's Doctor being the Doctor. I think my fu- my fundamental point would be that Talents of Wen Shiang is, to use a buzzword, institutionally racist. <laughs> Basically, because it it comes out of a what we would now view as a racist institution and a race, racist time, and just... Culture. Just, just a yes, yeah. and just just it's a product an, of its culture. Just an ins, just an insensitivity to certain things that we now we now that make us cringe, and mm. we've all, yeah, and so you know you wouldn't the yellow face 
makes us uncomfortable, obviously. And these days, I guess you, the obvious thing would be that you'd have, you know, you'd have a heroic Chinese character in there as well. Probably would be added yeah. to would be added to the mix. So you know, it's the in some ways it's <laughs> in some ways it is tokenism that you know you could you'd say that you know, but that's that would be like the Hollywood movie solution mm. to doing this kind of thing. If you wanted to make a movie about you know, frenzy of tongs, then you'd also then you'd also stick in. You know, the the good the good Chinaman who yeah. who is part of the you know probably played by Jackie Chan helping to <laughs> yeah so the issue is is, is less Chang it's the, it's it's the other caricature parts of the Chinese you know that that no one else gets a decent shot at yeah exactly and I just don't think in the, in this day and age you look at the you look at the entire structure and just think you can't do that for obvious reasons that you are stereotyping an entire race by one characteristic you know that mm. the every chinese person that, that's in the story and there aren't any chinese women in it at all <laughs> is a fiendish tongue member do you want to enter this fray paul or are you quite happy to let us not in the slightest in not in the slightest <laughs> no <laughs> no there is a very good essay out there and i don't recommend anybody reads kate orman's essay on the debt talons wing chang Owes to Fu Manchu, but more importantly, mm. the, the history, the Fu Manchu trope. I mean, mm. Fu Manchu is kind of split here between Chang, who is Chinese, and mm. Greel, who isn't, but is a, a, a moustache twirling mm. villain. Yes, that's a very good point. I'm just talking on the dramatic level. All the Chinese characters here are have been tricked and are in thrall of mm. Greel. I think Chang is such a tragic character. It's not entirely clear to me at what point he realizes that this man no. not only is not a god mm. <laughs> but he's not even deserving of his pity let alone his his service the doctor seems to know that chang knows this he mm. says you know this man isn't a god don't you and chang just can't answer mm. he just answers through telling us his own backstory yeah yeah just one other thing uh, with regard to Chang and his his sort of realization and so on. And I think, I think that stuff when you finally get the stuff on stage in episode four with Chang's act and the, and I think that's great because that's where clearly there is this respect between the Doctor and Chang. The yes. Doctor the Doctor goes into the lion's den. Chang has the opportunity to kill him outright with the the card trick and the gun, if it had come to it. I think that level of yeah, grudging respect and so on is, or not even grudging. It's, it's interesting. He's just a fascinating character and, yeah, brilliantly played. Hmm. I picked up on the line. <laughs> this is one of the areas which doesn't really bear close scrutiny in the plot. But they, have, the time cabinet has taken twenty years to get from. Well, it's been in London for twenty. How long again? Uh, sometime in the 1870s, isn't it? I think it's come back. So. Yeah, and mm. Greel has been searching for it for 20 years, he says this. Mm. But he's only apparently, relatively recently, discovered it's in London. But there is discussion of Chang playing for the crowned heads of Europe, is there not? Mm. Mm. So I imagine that they'd, tra they'd travelled a long way around. It seems to me that Chang has been raised, well, we know he's been raised mentally, from his simple peasant background, but also he'd been raised in society, mm, yeah. and and then um, now things are starting to deteriorate again. 
I, I guess we're we're sort of at if there's, any, if there's a couple more kind of minor points or something up that anyone wants to make. I'll tell you one thing we haven't mentioned: Mrs. Nelly Gusset. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Bob Holmes having fun, isn't it? <laughs> I guess we yes, I guess we talked about how good Louise is as well, haven't we? We're we going to try and link go back to Christopher Benjamin to link it into the next story. Then, do you think? It's interesting that you know, for all, there were all those years when people used to say Jago and Lightfoot, you could, a, a series had been discussed about the two characters, and I, it always seemed to me like a, a story told in a green room rather than anything that was all <laughs> that real. And I was, kind of, I have to say, I was a bit cynical about it, uh, and I didn't even get on the wagon instantly when the big finish companion chronicle was made. But somewhere down the line, maybe about series three or four I thought well you know clearly there's something happening here because they keep making the things and um, and so I got on board and started buying them and and it's extraordinary that you Paul and and others found this seam of adventures for these two characters to have in 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 so many different ways I mean I, I clearly it was a thing that could have happened now we come down to it um, but yeah it, it was it wasn't something that I could have envisaged so many stories and such a such a rich outcome from from mm. yeah from this from this one story. I think they were one of the great double acts, and whether or not that was pure serendipity. That's why I'm so interested in whether or not Bob Holmes was aiming that way, mm. or whether it was something mm. that surprised him. Maybe that's why episode five is full of them, mm. because he was just enjoying this new combination. It feels structurally like something you might do, and you might look at it on paper and think that's a neat. That's a neat way of doing it to pair the doctor off with one one character and or to, to have the two have them zigzagging between the two mm. the doctor and leader you know ricocheting between interacting with the two characters and then bring then bring the doctor and leader back together and and have the two characters meet up and see what they do i mean mm. I'd be surprised if he hadn't but then again he supposedly didn't realize he was writing all these comic double acts until <laughs> really I think until fans I, told I think him. until someone. Someone I'm wondering whether it was Eric Sayward pointed out to him in 1985, mm. allegedly. Mm. I don't think it's a stretch, the idea that Jago and Life are going to have more adventures on their own, because Jago clearly is very keen to get involved mm. in yes. his investigations, as long as somebody else is leading them. So he needs a substitute for the Doctor, mm. which becomes, yeah. becomes Lightfoot. And Lightfoot, as Trevor Baxter himself explains has, um, what, who knows if it's late in life, but uh, to the point where he's clearly not expecting much more excitement to come his Mm. way, has found this new vocation. Perhaps he's been watching with interest the the police going about their business while he's been stuck in his pathology room. So they they clearly are both men with with a gap in their lives, which Mm. these adventures are going to fill, and which they also fill for each other. And that's why we got uh, 13 series out of them. (laughs) Let's raise a glass to, to Jago and Lightfoot. Here's two of them. There was no obvious sign of it running out of steam either. And both terrific actors. Mm. If either one of them hadn't been pitch perfect, then I'd mm. maybe we'd just be talking about them fondly, but not in, in quite such glowing terms. Mm. Uh, we're all familiar with Christopher Benjamin from his other work, aren't we? So it's more, I think this sort of part, I mean, he was a superb Falstaff mm. when that came his way. I th- I feel Jago's much more up his street than Sir mm. Keith Gold, which... Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. It really doesn't use his mm. talents to best advantage. Yeah, I saw his movie Wiser Windsor at the Globe. 
That was uh, yeah. terrific. So Keith Gold is almost more offensively racist than Chang, but anyway. <laughs> Deep cut. Mm. So anyways, Chris, Chris, Christopher Benjamin, great bloke. They should bring him back. Yeah. Yes, they should. Yeah, well, from one of the great double acts to a single act, I suppose, in this. So Unicorn and the Wasp, written by Gareth Roberts, directed by Graham Harper. It's in the middle of series four, the latest in a series of celebrity historicals. And, yeah, Cluedo meets Agatha Christie, I guess. Yes, it is Cluedo meets Agatha Christie, isn't it? But I suppose, it, I mean, it's, it's 90% Agatha Christie, and I think it's only Cluedo to the extent that Cluedo rips off Agatha Christie, and it's an excuse for a few more cheap jokes, isn't it? Mm. Yes. I mean, the main thing I was... Uh, in fact, it starts with Cluedo jokes, I think, but yes. quite mm. quickly, which I guess well, I guess hooks in the the non-expert viewer who knows a bit about murder mysteries, but not specifically what Agatha Christie. It's quite a journey, really, for a casual viewer to be sucked in via Professor Peach with the little pipe in the library jokes, yes. and comes through to a, a homily about why Agatha Christie's so great and why her work will live on mm. over the course of forty-five minutes. Yeah. A, l- a less obvious target than Charles Dickens, I suppose, who also gets yeah. mm. some belated gags at his expense. Yeah, in the course of which it, it, it almost becomes what um, Vincent the Doctor is a, a couple of years later, in that you know it's, 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 it's finding Agatha Christie to low point in her life and giving her the opportunity to see that things will pick up later. I mean, she doesn't perhaps go away with that particularly strongly because she seems to 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 um, have a loss of memory at the end. But it, it, it certainly that's that's part of the narrative of, of what of what the story is saying. But in terms of the setup, I think what struck me was just how faithful it is to the standard templates of one of her standard country house drawing room mysteries. Yeah, all the archetypes are there, hmm. and it's not really any more overstuffed with people with secrets than, than the real thing slightly turned up yeah. mm. because we've only got 45 minutes to play him but um, really anyone who's not familiar with it this is what they're like yeah. I mean, it feels like you know, it, it, as you were saying with, with Towns of Wang Chiang it, you know, it's not set in the real universe you know, neither is this one it, 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 it's <laughs> set in, in Agatha Christie land but, I, but yeah I mean it's not as you say it's, it's, it's not so much yeah that's an interesting thought, actually. It just struck me that perhaps somebody, again, who wasn't familiar with her work, might think, also one of those cynical people who thought that um, back in the Russell T. Davis era, there was too much social commentary working its way into what should be a, a nice superficial action-adventure programme. They might think that the areas where we're looking more deeper into these characters, like um, illegitimate children and, and people with those sorts of secrets in their past, hmm. have been crowbarred in and they wouldn't have a place in the real thing but of course they are that's what (laughs) these ordinary people having ordinary secrets that they need to keep hidden and will murder to do so are exactly what her books are Mm. are all about yes which is the flip side of what the doctor tells her at the end that she that's her big secret she understands people Mm. so although as you say these are in some most cases quite large in life possibly Mm. not three very three-dimensional characters they're on the other hand they're very Agatha Christie in their two-dimensionality, mm. if that makes any sense at all. Yes. It's also not a million miles away from Gosford Park, 
as well. Mm. That was the other thing that I sort of picked up on, I thought, because you get the upstairs and downstairs kind of thing, mm. which obviously has has since been resurrected again with um, with Downton and yeah. stuff like that. Everything else we're saying it reminds us of, of course, is all stuff that owes a great debt to Agatha Christie. There's one yes, more. Yes, yeah. One, mm. one of the ones I thought was most interesting with hindsight, and this may be a completely superficial link, the scene where the Doctor starts interrogating the suspects and um, because we've only got 45 minutes they cut quite quickly between mo- several different interrogations we get a few question mm. answers from each person yeah. into cut m- chopping up the timeline which is exactly how it's done in Knives Out I don't know if either of you have seen that which was a, v- a very successful recent attempt to re- reinvigorate the traditional mm. murder mystery and they use a very similar technique because it's a cinema film and mm. not a novel mm. So it has to get us a, a shift on. Mm. Yeah, and it, there's a, there's a nice use of of the mentioned Orient Express thing of you know of everyone's guilty. In this case, everyone's got a secret. Mm. You know, so they're all lying to tra- to cover up the secret that they've got. It, 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 I, I I quite like that. I mean, what we have sort of somehow inexcusably avoided saying so far is just how funny this is. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. something they've got in common. Giant animals, Christopher Benjamin, and being very funny. Mm. And um, set, set in a fictional world. Sorry, go on. And it gets humour from all sorts of places, but it gets humour from. Well, what exactly is it? It's not in any way parodying Agatha Christie, but it um, it just gets fun out of what would happen if the Doctor and Donna <laughs> turned up in an Agatha Christie universe, which is the best way of doing these things. So at the end, when um, as you say, because everyone's got a secret, when Agatha and the Doctor are doing their round robin around the room, mm. pointing at everybody. I, I particularly like the bit where Donna gets the wrong end of the stick and thinks that people are being accused of being the murderer mm. when they aren't. <laughs> Just explain <laughs> that in the driest possible way. Yes. <laughs> How many more of these amazing jokes can I completely murder? <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of... Gareth Roberts' work for Big Finish, the the one Doctor and was it Bang Bang a Boom or that's the one, yeah, yeah, with 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 Clayton Hickman, again, you know, the the very broad comedy in places, and yet, you know, making some kind of serious points through it. Hmm. The plot is utterly ludicrous, but why would you worry about it? I guess, given that it's a fun story about. Do you mean the fundamental science fiction plot? The fact yeah. that an alien wasp, yeah, an exactly. alien shape-shifting wasp, through some bizarre accident, ends up yes. with the works of Agatha Christie as its template mm. for humanity. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a bit hand wavy, <laughs> but it gets away with it because it's a comedy. If this yeah. if this was a very po-faced story, and it tried to use that sort of explanation, and mm. there have been many stories that have gone down exactly that same route. Yeah. Mm as an excuse for why the villain or monster or whatever is doing what it's doing. Oh, it's because it's <laughs> based... It had its brain fused with complete works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, mm. it can get away with anything because it's a comedy, and it does. Mm-hmm. If you ignore the alien wasp aspects of it, it is quite a Christie-ish set-up as well. Like, the illegitimate child lost, and you know, who's thought of being given up and then comes back to wreak havoc... In the surroundings is quite a quite a familiar Christie trope that comes back. You know, that's that's using quite a few mm. few of her stories. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's that's quite Christie-ish about it is that you couldn't possibly guess it 
because you don't, you know, in Agatha Christie never gives you all the bits of the puzzle before the end, and in this you don't get all the bits of the puzzle. You, you, you know, you, 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 some of it is explained to you. With that in mind, I thought it was slightly unfair that they went for a cheap joke of the Doctor implying he says you get me every single time, or not every mm. time, or once or twice, yeah. or once. It doesn't make any sense because no, the books famously are not the sort of things you can work out. So no, they aren't. That's a cheap joke. Carry on. Well, like, yeah, and, and and I think that's that's not what her books are about anyway. They're not they're not about I'm I'm clever I'm clever enough, or you're clever enough to to give me all the pieces in a way that's that's hard to work out. But I'm just just clever enough to sort of see, see the pattern. That's mm. not what her books are about. They're they're, they're more as, as 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 the doctor says elsewhere about human nature and about I guess just just the the fun of the milieu that they're in. Mm. And and I suppose the detective aspect of it, but yeah, yeah, you're not, you're never really supposed to put yourself in the shoes of the detective and work it out before before they do. Yes, mm. we haven't we haven't trouble saying anything about this. I thought it was extraordinarily entertaining, and um, what I thought was the reason this is so good is because it's from season four of New Doctor Who, which is one of the best, possibly the, my, my favourite season. Of New Doctor Who, one of my favourite seasons of anything ever. It was just complete magic for me. And this is one of the overlooked stories, isn't it? Because it is, as we discussed in other episodes, one of those filler things. And I'm (laughs) using extraordinary quantities of inverted commas listeners. Mm. I don't Mm. consider this a filler. But of course, it's just a Doctor Who story. There's a lot Mm. of ARC stuff going on at this time. And um, apart from one line about bees... This is, you know, as far away from anything heavy and arky mm. as you can get. But for God's sake, it's the it's the tenth Doctor and Donna. What more do you mm. want? Mm. Oh, absolutely! It's firing all cylinders, and yeah, it's it's great. And they have they have such a fantastic cast to work with as well. And throughout, I've forgotten this had the two Felicities in it. Yeah, Jones and Kendall. <laughs> it <laughs> is very, settings. very, yeah, very strongly mounted, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. And quite a big cast as well, I think. I think one of the most interesting things is it's directed by Graham Harper. Yeah, and you yeah that never surprised guess if me. You, if, you, mm. if you didn't look, if, mm. you, if you covered you know, the screen with your hand as the director credit went past, you mm. would never guess, I don't think, except that it's very good. Mm. And mm. it was very intelligent use of him, not to save him for just the big action ones, because he, yeah, that reputation is deserved reputation for being good with action. Mm. Overlooked the fact that he's... Very good with axes, mm. Mm. and <laughs> just generally knows where to put the camera, regardless of whether or not he's there are a thousand Daleks in front of it or a load of character axes. Mm. <laughs> and it's a shame we've not seen him since, for whatever reason. Yes, yeah, I think we said Waters of Mars was his last outing, wasn't? Oh it? yeah, we have seen him since. It's a Sorry, shame we've not seen him but much yeah. since. Yes. Well, look at that. Look at the contrast there. Mm. Yes. Yes. Mars with its much. actual proper horror film directing. Yeah. Mm. We seem to these days. Doctor Who seems to burn through directors. I mean, there's there's hardly any that that come back and again and again. But maybe that's just the film industry. I don't know the, or the TV industry. But but it does feel like every showrunner has a few favourites, but not but not even. It's it's not like the old days where people keep coming back again and again and again. Mm. Yeah. Well, that Christopher Benjamin's in it, isn't he? That's probably. Yeah, I, mean, I, I wish he, I wish he was more in it. Actually, um, I mean, I, I enjoy his part, but you know, clearly it's not a, a yeah. major one. I mean, I have mixed feelings about that because, of course, because he's 
Not just Christopher Benjamin, he's Jago. Of course I'm thinking, you can't do that, it's like having Jacqueline Hill back and having her play the high <laughs> priest in Megloss, you can't do yeah. that. But on the other hand, you want the best person for every role, and yes. that's, that's got his name all over it. It's just, um, this is any other programme, and it didn't have the spectre of Henry Gordon Jago hanging over him, then you'd be delighted to get Christopher Benjamin to play mm. the minor role of the comedy colonel in the wheelchair. Yeah. Which I think, that reminded me of Real Inspector Hound, which is not Agatha Christie, but is a m- comedy murder mystery, which I was in at school. So the the references are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Stoppard, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I played that character. Ah. <laughs> I was probably doing my Jager impression, even back then, <laughs> at that young age. I think, <laughs> oh, it's murder on the throat when you're only 17. <laughs> Nice mention of the 1918 flu pandemic. I'm not sure that I knew anything about that when it came out, uh, what, 12 years ago, although now, of course, it's... Bloody uh, know about it now, don't you, Exactly, Rich? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't think we mentioned Fenella Woolgar, of course, which is a bit of an oversight. Mm. Uh, she's rather fantastic, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. She, does a great, she does a great job of um, standing up alongside these two. I wasn't that familiar with her before... This, I don't think. Mm. I'm not sure that compared to their other celebrity historical casting, all tended to be quite heavyweight, didn't it? And I seem to remember she was a, something of an unknown. But yes, she you know, acquits herself admirably, I think. It's nice when she turns on a sixpence on some occasions. You know, she's she's uh, you know her character is quite down on the Doctor. You know, when he's 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 being all tenanty and mm. oh, isn't this exciting? Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, she, she does a good job of bringing out that particular line. Yeah, so quite like her. Yeah, quite like her more serious moments in that. You, you believe the melancholy as well, I think. Mm, yes, exactly. That's the word I was looking for. It made perfect sense to match this with Tan's Wang Jiang, but it was always going to suffer in terms of the amount we can say about it, wasn't it? But as we've said, they're both quite lightweight stories in the best possible sense. They're just trying to entertain us and make full use of all the infinite possibilities mm. that Doctor Who offers. Mm. But for some reason, there's so much more to say about Talons. Perhaps if all three of us were massive Agatha Christie fans, we could pour endlessly over all the references to her other novels. Yes. If it was about Dorothy L. Sayers, I might be on firmer ground. <laughs> but there aren't as many of them, you see, so it's mm. easy to keep them all in Yes, place. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've probably read one Agatha Christie and watched dozens on telly. I think that's about my level of um, mm. knowledge. Oh, she had done, um, Fenelable Guy had done Bright Young Things a couple, ah. of, couple of years, uh, well, 2003 that would have been. Right. Is David Tennant in that? Uh, yes, apparently it was um, D- David Tennant suggested her casting. Still not seen it. Oh, right. Excellent. So I guess there was, there was a bit of form there, mm. sort of 1920s-ness. And so on. Uh, recently, there was a thing. There was a radio play, uh, which annoyingly it involved it involved Sayers, Sayers, Allingham, and Christie, and she, I think, plays Sayers. Rather than oh. I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I was a little disappointed that she didn't uh, didn't get to reprise Agatha Christie. It's interesting. I mean, it, it's only two thousand and eight. You know, it's only twelve years ago, and yet it seems that they have to really telegraph the fact that. What's his name? Roger and and the servant character are, are in some sort of love affair. 
you know, that somehow we, we couldn't possibly have worked that out unless they mentioned it about three times and, and do it in quite a pointed way. It's not a plot point, though, is it? It doesn't come up in the final round of revelations, does it? So it's just a character thing. Hmm. So Roger's dead by that point, though, isn't yes. he? By the time he gets to the... Yes, yeah. So he's not going to be accused of anything. Well, you see, that that's the point. If this, That's possibly the only note that doesn't ring true. I don't mean that as a criticism, but if if those two characters had been in an authentic Agatha Christie, mm. it would have been inv- incredibly important to the plot. Mm. Yes. they were gay. Yeah. Whereas here, mm. it's, it's representation, isn't it? Yes. It's, it, it would have been a... Yeah, it would have been not, a... It's why not? Why not show a large mm. palette of yeah, yeah. human, con- human yes. condition? And, get, and do it with a joke. Mm. I do miss Donna being slightly less politically correct about it. Yes. Less sensitive. She, yes. she was... <laughs> all she cared about was that it was one less opportunity for her, yeah. didn't she? <laughs> if it was just that one reference, I think that would have been very funny. It's just the fact that they, they all seem to mention it about twice more later on. Oh, I didn't on. notice mm. that. Okay. How dare they? <laughs> It would have been in there as a plot point, if only for blackmail purposes or something like yes. that, in a in exactly. a genuine yeah, yeah. sort of genuine Christie setup. That's um, the point. And if um, if it had been Chris Chibnall, we'd just have accused him of killing another gay character off, wouldn't we? Probably true. <laughs> I did think of that. I did think of that. I forget what the trope is called. I need to go to TV tropes and check. Oh Lord, kill your ga- isn't it just kill, kill your, your gays? gays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and does know. it still count when the writer and executive producer are gay? Does it? Oh, probably does. It, just, it means they've been indoctrinated. <laughs> 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 or it could just mean that they're mm. treating all their characters the same. as people. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it could dear. be that they are writing as if mm. we have a state of equality, which. Yeah. Which at off screen we don't. Should TV be representational or aspirational? Should it show you the world as you want it to be, or the world as awful as it is? Mm. Both. It should be both. Mm. Possibly alternating. Yes. Possibly at the same time in the same program. Mm. But it's not as simple <laughs> as some people think it is. Should TV be written with half an hour on TV tropes? <laughs> uh. Well, we've really got down and deep into the politics this week. I yeah. hope we don't come to regress it. <laughs> uh, 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 we, we may find that we get less into it in the edit. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's a nice use of the Biderbeck affair theme. I don't know if you noticed that early on. Oh, good Lord. Um, yes, I've, I heard the... Mm. When Donna does her flapper or slapper mm. comment. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why it's there, other than it's then I suppose the, the jazz thing will probably be for the right sort of period, but yeah, it's nice, it's nice to hear that music again. Mm. Is there anything to say about giant animals? <laughs> the thing is, yes, they're, they're, it's, it's quite ostentatiously a giant, an, ex, an oversized earth mm. animal yeah. from Talons. Whereas here, this is just another example of the new Who trope yes. of aliens what look like earth creatures. Mm. And they haven't even put a wasp's head on a human body, mm. have they? Which is what we'd get mm. most weeks. Mm. I quite like to see that. Actually. <laughs> yeah. It's just a wasp. It's just a bloody great wasp. And um, I was thinking that it would be a. That would have been the way. Because oh, I'd forgotten that it was a vest before. And I was thinking afresh, as I probably did the first time I watched it, that it might turn out to be 
and enlarged. Maybe it's because I've just been watching Talons. Mm. There might be an explanation for why, as it's on Earth, it looks like a wasp. But no, apparently they look like wasps on their mm. home planet. So, not sure that quite works out. Are you going to tell us, um, Charles, that it would be impossible for an insect to be that large? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you oh, hope so. Dear. Oh, the, clip, the clipboard's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is another case where I happily disengage my sciencey brain. Do they put in a line to explain why it doesn't die when it's used up its sting? Oh, no, 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 it's bees, bees that die. Uh, but they, but okay, they do, they do have a line that Donna's, <laughs> that um, that Donna yeah. remarks that oh, oh well, it'll be harmless. No, it's left its sting behind, and the doctor says something about the creature of that size has left some way of you know rearming itself. Yeah, because let's yeah. face it, you know, I mean, I, I'm much more likely to grow a hand back than a smaller person. <laughs> That's a. I thought that was unconvincing mm. at the time. That line, I couldn't quite work out why, but you put your <laughs> finger on it. I mean. It's not the fact that wasps don't grow their stings back. It's the fact that they don't have to grow their st- size. Size would be any have any well, bearing. You know, with, without it's more wishing likely. to get do- without wishing to get too Doctor Science about it, that's that's one problem. That yeah, bees leave their stings in. Wasps just jab and jab and go, and they 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 don't have to. They don't have to grow it back because they don't leave it behind. Um, Mm. Oh, Gareth Roberts, you idiot. <laughs> I can say that he's not listening. <laughs> so why exactly they wanted to have it left behind apart from as a apart oh, from his evidence that, yeah. that in, in a, apart from to short circuit the fact of you know having a possibly a tedious thirty seconds of Donna not being believed about what's mm. just attacked her. Yeah, this isn't old who, so we don't but we don't get Yes, that. yeah. But I mean I think <laughs> there would have been an, another way of doing it without leaving the sting behind if you'd if you wanted to be anatomically correct. So we, are we going to see this as some sort of convergent evolution, that, that uh, you know, something like a wasp emerges eventually on a well, um, sufficiently advanced... Ves- vespiform, I guess that's what it means, isn't it? If yeah. you, yes. Bloody hell, Richard, if you want to see it that yes. way. I just thought it was a bit of fun. <laughs> but no, apparently we've got to have how, an explanation. How big are the picnics? <laughs> how big are the picnics in the ice of galaxy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? Wasps are the personification, I think we all agree, of evil <laughs> on the planet Earth. So the Vespiform should be, that should be as you know much of a threat as the giant vampires should mm. be, in galactic terms. Maybe there's potential for, for more... Well, you know... More hot Vespiform action. Yeah, having talked about both ships and vampires a couple of episodes ago, yeah, maybe there's... Maybe there's potential for the fly spot of Vassalon. <laughs> <laughs> or just one of those bi- one of those big ultraviolet things with a electric zapper. Oh yeah. <laughs> they just put it up, put a perimeter of those up next to the Vesperform home planet, and. Uh... I think they're evil from the dawn of time. I think they were created alongside Fenric and went off into Fenric and wasps. <laughs> that killed the conversation. I think, I think I think that's a nice way to to, to bring it to a to a conclusion. It's a sh- it's a shame that this yeah it doesn't feel like there's quite as much meat to get one's teeth into. It doesn't mean it's any less enjoyable. The unicorn and the wasp. It's got a lot of lot of things going for it, but it it just doesn't quite feel like there's really the meat to get stuck into in the same way that there is with talents. And partly that's just going to be a function of the fact it's one third of the length. But 
Yeah, it's not got any great themes. I mean, is there a class thing going on here? And I, I suppose there is a bit with with the unicorn with Felicity Jones's character. And the, yeah, they don't, they don't dwell any, on that thing, do they? Depth, do they? Thank mm. goodness. <laughs> We've got Gosford parked for them. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It might. Apparently. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah. So in, in Gosford Park, I think it's uh, Clive Owen plays the wasp. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think if if we've if we've given that our best shot, then it's been it's it's been fun. I've I've uh, I've certainly enjoyed discussing both of them with you, and you can be sure that from the bones of that, that a, a, a sparkling hour and a half of repartee will emerge in the edit. <laughs> so thanks both of you. Thanks for, thanks for uh, for your company and for your thoughts on those two stories. Quite alright. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure pleasure watching them. I was planning to sit in front of my PC with my headphones on tonight anyway, so <laughs> might as well do a podcast while I'm here. Well, yeah, given the, uh, given, the, given the rapidity with which you're churning out podcasts these days, Paul, I, I, I fully believe it. Mm. Crikey. Did I suggest this combination? I think it came... Yes. Mm. I, I remember how it started. I said, we've done a few duffers recently. Let's just, let's go, let's go for a classic. Yeah. Let's go for talons. Let's go for the top mm. job. Well, I think at least we've, um, yeah, we've proved the point that we don't need bad stories to get stuck into and find stuff to talk about. Mm. At any rate, it's not one of those cases where you, where you just run out of stuff to say other than well, it's good in it. <laughs> Have you managed to get hold of a ravening beast to protect the back entrance to the Something Who bunker? Absolutely. Yeah, it, got it all covered. Is, I borrowed one that, from that. Is that a ravening beast now? Stop to think about oh, yeah, it. Well, I was acting then. I know. I'm just trying <laughs> yes, to Yes, it's, ra- it's obviously ravening. Ravening. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I'll start again. Yeah. <coughs> Any more words you're not sure about that you want to check before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear me. I only write this stuff. Well, yeah, so in, in Gosford Park, I think it's uh, Clive Owen plays the wasp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my throat just went all Dalek-y there. That's, yeah. that's got to be our cue to finish. Yeah, sorry, I must, uh, mm. must take out the ring modulator now. <laughs>